Well, we're going to have a look today at uh, Joel, Joel chapter 1. And I'd like to uh, just summarize this chapter, really, Joel 1. It's really an appeal, a desperate appeal for the people of Judah and, and Jerusalem to, to come and, and appeal desperately to God by having a fast in verse 14, having a solemn assembly, and all the inhabitants of the land coming into the, the temple of God and crying unto him because of this day of the Lord that is coming. And that is brought uh, to, to more focus in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Rend your heart, not your garments. He talks about this uh, gathering that he proposes in more detail. Because, verse 14, who knows if God will return and repent, change his mind. And this uh, threatened invasion, this threatened destruction would not happen. But it's quite clear from what we've just read here in chapter 1 that, in fact, quite a lot of the destruction had already happened. And I want to focus on verse 4. That which the palmer worm has left has the locust eaten, and what the locust has left has the canker worm eaten, and what the canker worm has left the caterpillar has eaten. And the, the state of the land, as he describes it in this chapter, is that the land is all smashed up and uh, it is really in a mess. So these four um, sort of uh, invasions, as it were, of these insects that had come and, and each of them had progressively wrecked the land and brought it to its knees, it seems that this is a, ref a reference to the four uh, waves of Babylonian invasion. If you read 2 Kings 24 and 25, the Babylonians didn't just come and grab the people of Judah and take them away into captivity. They came uh, four times, different waves of the invasion, taking more and more of the land, damaging more and more, until finally the fifth time they came and that was it. The temple was destroyed and the people were taken into Babylon. So I would locate this prophecy of Joel right there, uh, 2 Kings 25, that there's been these four waves of Babylonian invasion, and now Joel, as I see it, this is him single-handedly, urges them to all get together and pray desperately that this final destruction will not happen. And one can, I think, assume that his call here was not answered. When he talks in verse 13 of chapter 1, you ministers of my God, you come and do this. And he even has the ambition, I think, in verse 19, O Lord, to you will I cry. As if he's thinking, well, maybe I can stand in the gap. Because it seems that this, this great assembly that he calls, as far as we know, didn't happen. Now, the point I want to make is that God had also predicted before this time that because Judah had sinned, they were going to be destroyed, uh, that the temple was going to be ruined, and they were going to go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And yet Joel seems to see the possibility that after those four invasions, even at the very end, there was, as he says in chapter 2, verse 14 there, the possibility that God could return and repent, as he says, change his mind. And that the invader, the northern army, would actually be destroyed and the conditions of the kingdom of God would be established. But that didn't happen. And yet my point is that Joel saw the possibility of that happening. And this, I think, opens up something I want to talk about, that 
God's purpose in one sense is, is in some ways, on some points, open-ended. That, for example, he says to, uh, to Nineveh, in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. He does not say, if you repent, you won't be. He says, without giving any condition, in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. But they repented, and so that did not happen. Uh, there's a lot of examples of this. You know, God says to Moses, I am going to destroy Israel and make of you a greater nation. But Moses says, ah, oh, don't do that. And he pleads with God, and God in that sense changes his mind. And he says this a, a number of times, that he does change his mind because of his grace. That, that, that's why. And I just want to uh, sound a warning, a caveat against this idea that kind of God is totally unchangeable. That this is really a Greek pagan idea. It's not a Hebrew idea at all. It's a Greek pagan idea that if you're God, then you have no emotion, you have no passion, and you will never change. And you state your purpose and you do it and that's it. And you're kind of indifferent. It's very much the idea in Islam. The God of the Bible, particularly the Hebrew Bible, is not like that. Here we have a God who is unchanging in some things, for example, in his mercy to Israel, as he says, uh, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed, when you should be, because I, your God, in that respect, do not change. My senseless grace, as it were, and patience with you people does not change. But there's plenty of examples in the Bible of where God does change his stated purpose in response to human repentance and, and behavior. I mean, he says this, that he is the potter working, he's planning to do one thing, but if, if we don't respond or if we do respond, he, he will do something else. He talks about the destruction of Ahab very clearly, and then it doesn't happen because Ahab repented. And there's a number of examples of that. And I, I think we have here in Joel a man who perceived the possibility. He perceived that, look, we're at the very end. There's been these four waves of Babylonian invasion. The end and the destruction of the temple is now really going to happen. But we can pray to God not to do that. So then God is in dialogue with us. And he it doesn't want us to be robots, and he also does not want us to just be blindly, thoughtlessly submissive, like the Roman slave who has to just pick up an object that is dropped just, you know, a hundred times a day just to prove his or her obedience to the master. God wants relationship with us. And in relationship, in any relationship, and you see it particularly if you think of your family relationship with, with partner, children, friends, your parents or whatever, with any relationship there is an element of compromise and an element of give and take. And God is in relationship with us. This more open idea, this more open approach that I'm suggesting to the things of God and his purpose with us, I think this makes prayer meaningful. Because let's face it, if God has decreed certain things shall happen, such as Nineveh shall be destroyed after 40 days, well, you better just uh, eat, drink and be merry and count the days. 39, 38, 37, 36, that's it. Whereas if you perceive that God is open to dialogue, and that he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets, but he is uh, open to discussion. 
as it were. This gives huge meaning to prayer. This changes the whole idea of prayer. <clears throat> Indeed, for me, if if God is not like that, I, I would have a difficulty, a moral difficulty, a practical difficulty with praying. If you know, I think well, it's all it's all going to be just done anyway according to His will. So what's the point? When we pray in, in the Our Father in the Lord's Prayer that Your will may be done, if you think about it. That's not just a, you know, say, yeah, well, do your will. You're going to do your will anyway, but I'm just, I'm just adding to that. So, yeah, okay, you do it. I think that it's the fact we ask for God to do his will would imply that there are times and some aspects and senses in which he does not do that will. And, of course, we have to, of our own free will volition, do that will. So... Joel's idea here didn't work out because the final Babylonian push came and they were taken into captivity and the temple was destroyed and, and that was that. And so that doesn't mean though that God's word of prophecy, as it were, is then redundant. It comes true but in another way. Now in verse 2 of chapter 1 he says, listen to this you old men. And give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Now you meet these uh, these old guys, these old men again, in chapter 2, verse 28, where, going on on the basis that what he said in chapter 2, verse 14, look, if we really repent and tear our hearts and our garments, then who knows if God will repent, change his mind, uh, and basically destroy the northern army. And what's going to happen is that at that time... Chapter 2, verse 28. God's Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh. Your old men shall dream dreams. Interesting that in chapter 1, verse 2, the old men, and in chapter 1, verse 3, the, uh, the children and your children's children are all mentioned. And you've got that here in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, where again the old men, the young people, and indeed all flesh is back there, um, <clears throat> Joel 1 verse 2, the old men, all flesh, or all inhabitants of the land, and your children and your children's children. So there must be a connection. What is the connection? I think that if those people addressed in chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, the old men, the children, uh, all inhabitants of the land, if they had responded, then they would have been the ones in chapter 2, 28 and 29, who would have had the gifts of the Holy Spirit and uh, in some sense, uh, God's kingdom could have been established then. Now, of course, these verses in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 are quoted in the New Testament in Acts 2 and are given an interpretation at that time in the first century when the gospel is preached by Peter. And that was, I suppose, a, a partial fulfillment of the final fulfillment which, which will come in God's kingdom. So my point is that, okay... There was an intention here. There was a plan A that Israel or Judah could have repented and the final Babylonian destruction need not have come, even though God had predicted it in quite some, some detail. Now, talking about how these words have different uh, fulfillments, I'd like to share with you verse 4. That's something that I, I didn't work out, but, but you can find it in a number of commentaries, and that's what I found it. Um, if you look at these four animals, 
or insects, palmer worm, locust, canker worm, and caterpillar, you know that there's gematria in Hebrew, that is that each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value. Well, the first one that he talks about is the palmer worm, and that's got a numerical value of 50. When you put the letters together, add up how much they come to, the word the Hebrew word gazam, translated palmer worm, comes to 50. And that's how long uh, Babylon dominated Israel, from 588 BC to 538. Locust, Hebrew word arbe, that's got a numerical value of 208. And that's how long Persia dominated the land of Israel, 538 BC to 330. The next one, the canker worm, Hebrew word yelek, numerical value 140. That's how long Greece dominated the land from 330 BC to 190 BC, and then there was the time of the Maccabees, um, and then there was the caterpillar, the Hebrew word hasil, which has got the numerical value of 108. Now, I would suggest that that refers to the Roman domination. The first Herod, Herod uh, Antipater, um, was made king by the Romans in 38 BC, and from 38 BC to AD 70, you've got 108 years. Now, that is significant, and it's that, that's been commented on by a number of people. And, of course, you've got the same order there, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, as you've got in Daniel's image. The empires that are to rule over all the earth, which I take to be all the land of Israel. And yet, of course, chronologically, that's a bit odd, because Joel is here talking, as I suggested firstly, about the four Babylonian invasions, and he's pleading with the people to make a desperate repentance so that actually God's threatened total destruction of Judah will not happen. And yet, okay, that didn't happen, uh, and so they were carted off to Babylon, but then this word of prophecy has another fulfillment that becomes evident. That, okay, after those four empires have uh, risen and fallen in dominating the people of Israel, or the land of Israel, I should say, um, there is again the opportunity, it seems, for there to have been a repentance. And Harry Whitaker made a lot of this, that Jesus could have come in AD 70, in the sense of literally returning and establishing the kingdom. And the expectation, the clear expectation which there was in the New Testament writings of the imminent return of Christ, was in a sense true, that he, he could have come then, but it seems that, again, uh, maybe the gospel didn't go into all the world, the, the church was not united as it should have been, Israel did not repent of having killed, uh, killed the Son of God, their Messiah. And so, for whatever reason, it didn't happen and was again delayed, we believe, to our, our last days. And in a sense, thank God for that, because you and I wouldn't have the wonderful hope of the kingdom, would we, if it had worked out any other way. So, God will not be beaten, and, and his word is written in, in such a beautiful way that it ultimately still comes true. It could have come true in a very simple, literal way after the four Babylonian waves were finished, if they had responded to what, Ezra, uh, what Joel was appealing for, 
then, you know, it, it could have all been different, but they didn't, okay? But God does not give up. He keeps on and on trying with people, as you've probably noticed him keeping on trying with you in your life. So then, God is open. He is open to human repentance. He's opened a human pleading, and Joel understood this because he had seen the example there in, in, in Moses, and of course so many other Bible characters, where this change of mind is brought about by God. He is so sensitive to human repentance. And if we take nothing more away from our little reflection today, especially in the context of the breaking of bread and our reflection upon Jesus there, God is so sensitive to repentance. He is so sensitive to it. And repentance is not a vague flutter of conscience, particularly in the, in the context of the bread and wine. Um, you know, repentance is more than that. It is a rending of, of hearts. And God is so sensitive to that. He really, really is. And let us not think that we necessarily are so much better than the Judah at this time. Because he, he talks really about how the, the physical land is suffering for their sakes. There's quite a lot of reference to the animals, to the, uh, the plants, the seeds, etc. And... It's been rightly said that on almost every page of the Bible there is an allusion back to Adam's sin. And I think we have that here quite clearly. The point being that they were living out Adam's sin all over again and therefore the land, the earth, land of Israel was suffering because of that. And, you know, Adam was every man. If we had been in his situation, we would have done the same. That's why... For all time, therefore, the question or the feeling that uh, it's not fair that I'm suffering for, you know, what happened, whatever, 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden, uh, that some guy made a sin and, and ate a fruit and therefore I suffered. No, that is for all time silenced. Because if we had been in his situation, we would have done the same. And so many sins which are recorded in the Bible, so many failures, and they seem to be recorded on almost every page, are framed in the language and with allusion to Adam's sin. There's uh, another thing I, I would just like to mention, and it's in verse 8, where having described how, again, the, the land has been so wrecked, um, verse 7, that the vine has been laid waste and the fig tree has been barked. Lament like a virgin for the husband of her youth. Because, verse 10, the field is wasted, the land mourns, the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languishes. So the virgin is weeping for the loss of her husband, her young husband or the, the young woman, is, is, is mourning for the loss of her young husband. Now, wait a minute. The virgin is Judah, right? So, who is the husband? Well, the whole idea, surely, is that Judah were married to God. This is made very plain in, in uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 3, uh, and in Ezekiel 16. It's, it's made very clear that Judah were married to God, that he fell in love with them in the wilderness, etc., 
And there's the passage in, in Isaiah where, again, in fact, in this context, God says to them, when I restore you, this is after the failure in Babylon, the, the period in Babylon, when I restore you, then I will comfort you like a young wife who has just lost her husband. I will comfort you. Now, clearly then, God was the, the intended husband. And yet, the context here in Joel seems to be saying, you, virgin, uh, Israel, Judah, weep like a virgin because you have lost all your, verse 10, your fields, your corn, your new wine, your oil. You've lost them. So, weep like a virgin or young woman mourns for her husband who she has lost. The point is that she was not so much married to God as to all these material things in her life, despite the very clear biblical allusions to Judah being married to God. Hosea is absolutely full of this. Um, She, in reality, was married to the things of this world. And when she lost them, her corn, her new wine, her oil, all that stuff, then she felt that she was like a, a young woman who's just lost her young husband. And that really brings it right up to us. We are in covenant relationship with God and with Jesus. And that means that we are not in covenant relationship with anybody or anyone else. If we were to lose everything that we had materially, then that should be ultimately neither here or there because we have got him. He should be our everything. There's some very fine hymns that talk about this, about Jesus being our everything, etc. Um, but it's really quite difficult to actually really feel that in, in human life, that really and truly I have nothing but him. One final thought as we perhaps come closer to thinking about Jesus and, and his death and resurrection. In a sense, God was Judah's husband, and the passage in Isaiah says that she was like a, a young wife who had lost her husband during the 70-year period. In a sense, then, you could say that God died. Of course God did not die. But it was as if, and he chooses to use that uh, figure of speech, that Judah was like a young virgin who had lost her husband in death. And who was her husband? God. Now, I think there you see some vague premonition. Well, not premonition, what is the word, some, some vague uh, pointing forward, some vague precursor of the fact that God was in Christ in his time of dying. That although God did not die in the same way as a father feels for the pain of his son, in that sense God was so intensely manifested in his son at the time of the death of Jesus that it was as if he went through that death of course he did not die Uh, that's sort of obvious 
But, you know, when darkness came over the earth, when Jesus died, I mean, it was as if God was in eclipse. He put himself in that because he had so identified himself with his son. And so God went through that earlier in his relationship with Israel, that when they were cut off, so he was. That, you know, it's the old thing, this hurts you, sorry, this hurts me far more than it hurts you. That in the, the punishing of Israel, God felt every bit of the pain that they had in himself. As has been rightly said, we each die, part of us dies in the death of those we love. And God loved Israel without any question. And in a sense, he suffered all that he brought upon them because he was so identified with them. And in in more visible human terms, this was all brought to brought of its ultimate term in the unique person of the Lord Jesus, that he as God's only begotten son, he who shared God's feelings, he whose spirit, whose mind was at one with that of the Father in heaven, his death was a bearing really of all Israel's judgment. And God felt for that and in that. So, summing up then as we we try to bring this together the openness of God the, the, the spiritual ambition of Joel in calling this fast the real possibility that God will change in response to human words and that the way that God will never be beaten and that okay his word could have had a fulfillment in one way if they had responded they didn't respond okay so there was another opportunity for it all to come true in the first century that didn't happen and now when Israel again is to be invaded there is another opportunity for it to come true in our days um, and the final reflection there about who are we married to that are we really so much better than Judah? Have we also not sinned after Adam's uh, pattern, just as they did here? And who are we married to? We are married to him, or we should be exclusively to him, and not to the things of this world. And our final reflection was that, in a sense, God, whilst they were in captivity in Babylon, God so shared their suffering that he almost, in a sense, in essence, died with them. Not that he did uh, physically, but I suggested that that all came to a more phys physical and visible uh, manifestation in the death of the Lord Jesus. And so, beyond the steely silence of the skies, you know, man is not alone. You are not alone, and I am not alone, even in our sufferings for our sins, because in Christ, God is with us.